0: Hey friends, welcome to Life Together Unscripted. This podcast is for those of us who are just a bit tired of everything that looks so polished and schmick in the world. Production that's squeaky clean that you know has been practiced a million times. So we are hopeful that you enjoy the unedited and unscripted nature of this show. We can promise you that this episode you're listening to today uh, was unplanned on the front end and unedited and untouched on the back end. So we hope you enjoy this episode. This is life together unscripted hello there dr Imes. how are you today
1: there we go can to get my
0: yeah getting technology all sorted
1: yeah i had it all sorted and then i needed to get up and get a drink <laughs> so
0: of course it's that's yep. uh that's the nature of technology i'm um pretty certain in in eternity we're not going to have um wires that's my uh that's my tip
1: i'm sure you are right about that <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, thank you for joining me today, um, Dr. I'm right off the bat curious to know uh, when is it when is it appropriate uh, to use the doctor title, and when is it? Um...
1: Uh, it depends on the person. For me, I'm fine if you call me Carmen. People call me Carmen, and that's fine. Um, it it may be nice in introducing me to let people know that I that I am a I do have a doctorate, but my students all call me Carmen, and that's fine.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Does that range at all in your understanding um, in different kinds of doctorates? So people that are um, practicing um, health doctors or things like that, yeah. uh, that formality, do you know?
1: Yeah, you know, it 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 changes I think from context to context. So mm-hmm. I don't even know if all medical doctors would have the same approach to that question. Um, I find a lot of my female colleagues at other institutions feel it's really important to be called by their title because they've noticed that students tend to show less respect to them than to their male colleagues. And so they try to reinforce, like, I'm not your mother, I'm not your friend, I am your professor. So they insist on being called doctor, but I had the, the interesting experience of teaching simultaneously at two different universities. And so I decided to try a social experiment. And I had all my students call me Dr. Imes at one school and Carmen at the other school. And I just kind of, waited to see how that would play out. And if anything, i I actually felt less respect from the students who were calling me Dr. Imes than the students who were calling me Carmen. There may there may have been other like institutional dynamics at work there, but I just I didn't feel like I lost anything by being on a first name basis. So that's wow. been my practice.
0: That's so interesting. I love little yeah. social experiments like that. Yeah. That's really cool. And I think yeah. um, similarly, where I'm over here in Australia, I think mm-hmm. that, that play out over here. There's a something called tall poppy syndrome. Not sure if you're oh, that Oh, yes, I just um,
1: recently heard that.
0: Yeah, and so it's it's cutting down the tall poppy, and it kind of permeates mm-hmm. culture way back. And so when you have um, people of influence or you know the title mm-hmm. doctor, there's a there's a skepticism or a cultural um, suspicion of that mm-hmm. kind of hierarchy. And yep. so it's always kind of leveling that playing field. And um, I just, yeah. yeah, I reckon you're
1: right. I I spent a lot of time in the <laughs> Pacific Northwest. That's not where I'm originally from. Um, but Oregon is a very egalitarian culture. Like people don't put on airs. And so it, it seems to me like, you know, most university presidents go on, you know, they're on a first name basis <laughs> with people and figure well, if the president's, going by Bob, then I could be Carmen. Yeah, it's good.
0: So, yeah. So good. Well, hey, we met a couple of months ago. Um, We're both a part of a discussion board. And um, I remember I was wrestling through a question and it was something, I'm paraphrasing here, but it was something around uh, the law was meant to crush you or that was a term that I had heard before. the law is always intended to point you back to a savior or your need for a savior. And I mm-hmm. just remember, as a process, I'm like, I don't know if I believe that anymore. I've heard that for years, and mm-hmm. um, in my circles, and I just don't know if I believe that. So I put that out on the discussion board, and then uh, you came and and you you had some thoughts. And I'd love to hear. Would you mind filling in the gaps and, and some of the thoughts as it relates to that question?
1: Just sure. Yeah. I don't. I don't remember that particular <laughs> discussion. I have lots of them online. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> But I do see a lot of people imagining that Old Testament law is mainly, mainly has a negative purpose, that its main purpose is to show us what we, uh, what we lack, that we're not Mm. capable of keeping it. And I think that's a misreading of what's happening in the book of Exodus. When God appears to his people at Sinai and gives them the law. He's not trying to crush them. He actually prefaces the law by saying, I'm Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slaves. So whatever follows that initial announcement of who he is and what he's done for them has to be consistent with the notion that he's set them free. Mm-hmm. So it's not there to re-enslave them, but rather to show them what it's like to walk in freedom or um live as a community of people who who affirm each other's dignity who who protect each other's rights that sort of thing so i i think we can see lots of examples in the old testament of the of the the israelites failing to keep the law but that does not mean that the law in itself is a failure or that it was meant to fail
0: yeah love that. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I see um, your book back there, Bearing God's Name, and yes. <laughs> I know you need to talk about that a little bit. Um, what's your elevator pitch, I suppose? What did you mm-hmm. set out to do with Bearing God's Name um, specifically?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a book that's based on my doctoral research, but it's written for people who do not have a doctorate and aren't interested in getting one. <laughs> so the The basic premise of the book is that the command, when God commands the Israelites not to take his name in vain, that he's actually not prohibiting a particular form of speech or telling them not to swear, but that that command is much broader. God is asking them not to misrepresent him among the nations. So they bear his name. And in Hebrew, the the verse says more literally, you shall not carry or bear the name of Yahweh, your God in vain. So I trace that theme of what does it mean to be the people of God who represent him among the nations by bearing his name. It's like they have an invisible tattoo, like he's claimed them as his own and now they're his representatives. And so, yeah, it's, it's an exciting theme. Once you see it, it's everywhere.
0: Yeah. I believe that. Um, I was going to ask, uh, In terms of bearing God's name, yeah, because we often uh, attribute that to swearing, correct? Like Mm -hmm. we often attribute that to, and it's been watered down in that context. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you seek to course correct when you see that uh, as it relates to, you know, um, Christian culture and and people getting kind of, you know, um, uptight about what that means or, um, you know, or how is it, how is it helpful uh, for us to think about that, I suppose.
1: Mm-hmm. I would say that that my reading of that command does not mean, go ahead and say God's name however you want. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, I don't think we should go around using God's name as a swear word. But I just, I don't think that that's what the command is addressing in particular, because I don't think any ancient Near Eastern person, frankly, was dumb enough to do that. Yeah. They understood that there was power in divine names, and they didn't want to miss they didn't want to anger the gods. They didn't want to, the, they didn't want to um, misapply or misuse them. So the, the danger would have been um, more of a, a, a broad lifestyle application. So when I, see, when I hear people talk about that, I might challenge them to, to take another look and say it's broader than what you think. But, but it still means if we're going to bear God's name well, if we're going to represent him well, then we'll be careful how we speak. So I don't think it's like dangerous for us to think about it as being careful how we speak. But I think we're missing something if that's all we think it's saying to us.
0: Yeah, definitely. And curious to know, um, uh, there is that um, almost respect or reverence or awe that feels very different when you read about, you know, how Israel would have treated God and and how they would have the reverence. Yes, um, yes. What are your reflections on that as you kind of, you know, you studied that culture in depth. Mm-hmm. And then now, mm-hmm. you know, in 2020, we relate to God differently, sometimes we even too. using words like, um, you know, brother mm-hmm. or friend or, or mm-hmm. um, uh, daddy, even, you know, in prayers yeah. and things like that. And, yeah. and so um, not in a value judgment, not rightly or wrongly, but just knowing that that's a difference in terms of how we've, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sought to understand God and relate to him. What are your reflections on that as two different cultures?
1: Yeah, I, I I don't want to eliminate the sense of intimacy that we have with God. I think that it's true. God, God comes to his people and he reveals his name and invites us to use it. So I think we can approach him by name. We can call him Yahweh. We can call him daddy even um, maybe, but... But I would say that one thing we've lost in our day and age is that deep sense of respect. And I think we could recover that healthy sense of fear of God, realizing how powerful he is, realizing how holy he is, realizing what it costs us when we work at cross purposes to him. I think um, you know, our churches, I don't know what churches in Australia look like, but I'll tell you that churches in North America have veered more and more towards the coffee shop feel. You grab your coffee and you sit down and, and it's it's sort of this ambiance of of relaxation and the lighting and the mood is all like, I'm watching you people on stage do your thing. And I hope you give me a good concert today. Yeah. And there's there's less of a sense that we're coming into the presence of God and we need to honor him with our behavior, with with our hearts. Um, mm. yeah, we we have we've lost that sense that he's actually present with us. And if we really thought he was present, we would probably be more afraid, which would be a good thing,
0: yeah. What do you think it's um that I'd love to I'd love to pick up on the the cultural context in Canada, but I'm going to park that for a minute because I do want to sure. um, touch on. Yeah, a healthy sense of fear of the Lord, right? And and so we're talking about fear of the Lord all throughout the Old Testament. And, and we might've lost some of that as you're kind of commenting on, what do you think? Um, yeah. What do you think that healthy fear of the Lord could or should look like for us?
1: I think that a healthy fear recognizes who God actually is <laughs> and what his <laughs> what his power involves and, Hmm. and what he's called us to do and be. So this feels like a feeble illustration. But I remember as a kid, my dad would be away at work, and my mom stayed at home with us. And if one of us was really disobedient, usually my brother, um, (laughs) then my mom would, would warn us, Daddy's going to be home soon. Now, daddy coming home was usually good news because it meant, you know, we've been waiting for him all day. In fact, we used to play hide and seek and we would be like, oh, dad's home. Let's run and hide.
0: (laughs) no, we lost you.
1: Okay, how about now?
0: I got you. Yes, dad's home. Okay, cool. Run and hide. Okay,
1: Yes, so we run and hide Mm -hmm. and oh, did you lose me again? Nope. It says the internet connection is unstable. We're getting faster internet soon. Anyway, there's this sense of intimacy and excitement because Mm -hmm. daddy's coming home and we're so glad that he's coming home and we wanna see him. But if you've been naughty while daddy was at work, Mm -hmm. then daddy coming home has a more ominous feel to it. And it's not because daddy is a bad person it's because I've been a bad person, hmm. and so we don't fear him because he's um, in in a in a healthy home. You don't fear daddy because he's um, malicious. You fear him because he has the authority and the um, and the place in the home, depending on how your home is structured, uh, to to discipline you in some way, and it's probably going to hurt. And it's again not because dad's bad, but because I've been bad. So I think a, f- a healthy fear of the Lord might be similar to that, in that we recognize that being close to God is good news unless we're living in rebellion. Then God with us is actually more ominous because he's coming to us in judgment rather than coming to us with an embrace.
0: Yeah, I, I love that analogy. You don't have to, word, you don't have to use the adjective feeble. I think that's perfect. Because, you know, what's interesting and great is that, it, is that it's not the nature of God necessarily that's angry, but he is then reactionary to our disobedience. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, in that dad illustration, dad can be uh, coming home from work, regardless of his mindset, mm-hmm. but he's then reactionary and, and seeking to discipline the child that he loves and has yeah. to switch gears as a result yeah. of your disobedience. I think that's right. I, I think that's wonderful. Yeah, cool. yeah. I, yeah that. I mean,
1: I, the the w- the reason it might be a feeble illustration is just because dads are human, right? Yes, and so, of course. <laughs> so there are abusive fathers, and, yeah. and there are fathers who don't discipline well, or you know. So so it's it's feeble to the extent that your own experience doesn't sort of bear this out. But
0: yeah, you can great. at least
1: use your imagination.
0: Yeah. Um, you might not have an answer for this, but I think about that often, what it means to um, have the attributes of God. Um, and so you use that analogy. And and for me, thinking on um, the perfect father, regardless of my uh, father's, you know, the way he fathered me or anything like that. <laughs> but what do you think? Uh, and again, this is just uh, very idealistic, and very idyllic. Um, what do you think it is to, I guess, know the attributes of God? What can we know as mm. it relates to? You know those mm. metaphors of um, the, the the love of the Father, and then we see that in part, but not in full, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. we experience or understand this as a humanity. And because we're made in the image of God, we uh, understand that or or know that or have that kind of shared um, perspective. And what is mm-hmm. beyond our comprehension, beyond our knowledge, beyond our? Do you have any? As I'm riffing, yeah. do you have any thoughts on that? Or do you ever think on that yourself?
1: Yeah. Um, well, one, one place that I've been thinking about that lately is in the early part of Exodus. I'm writing a commentary on Exodus and I was working through chapter three, which is where Yahweh reveals his name to Moses. But he doesn't, when Moses asks his name, God does not answer immediately with his name. He He kind of gets a running start three times before he actually says it. So in Exodus 3, um, verse 13, Moses says, what's, you know, what's his, if they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? So in verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am, but this isn't quite his name yet. Or you could translate that I will be whoever I will be, which is almost a non-answer. It's almost like saying, I don't have to I don't have to answer to you. I, I am the self-existent one. Um, and then in verse 15, he says, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is where he actually says Yahweh. Um, so, so I am who I am in verse 14. Then again, in verse 14, I am has sent me to you. So there's this three the, the fact that it's repeated three times. One of my colleagues, Austin Searles, wrote his dissertation on this passage, and he says, you know, people are all bent out of shape trying to figure out the origin of the name Yahweh and what it means, like what it's what's it's what is its essential meaning, and he says. There is no essential meaning other than the deference to you can't quite fully know me yet. And it's only in the unfolding of the rest of the book of Exodus that you come to find out who Yahweh is based on how he acts on your behalf. So he is the God who rescues from Pharaoh. He's the one with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. He's the one who claims the firstborn. He's the one who meets them at Sinai in glory and power and um, invites them into a covenant relationship with him. And so then it's not until you get to chapter 34, verses six and seven, that he he more fully unpacks for the people, for Moses, who passes it on to the people, who he actually is and his attributes. And he Moses says, I want to know you more, God God comes to him in this sort of visionary experience and he proclaims to Moses, Yahweh, Yahweh, gracious and compassionate, uh, slow to anger and abounding in love, who does not leave the guilty unpunished, but punishes the fathers for the sins of the children to the third and fourth generation. So you have this sort of package deal that covers the range of God's attributes, but they're not attributes that we ever know, can really know abstractly, that we know them through our experience. We, the Israelites come to know him by following the pillar of cloud through the wilderness and watching him provide manna every day and by hearing the law and what's expected of them. So, yes, God is unknowable, but he's also stooped to make himself known to us. And so I think I think what Exodus sets up for us is is an unending process of coming to know who Yahweh really is.
0: Yeah, it's so good. I love that. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like we're almost backwards. If we were grabbing a coffee together, um, I would have asked you this <laughs> a long time ago. We jumped straight into the deep end. But um, what, mm-hmm. is your, what is your day job, Carmen, Dr. Carmen Ives.
1: <laughs> <laughs> My My day job is teaching Old Testament at Prairie College in Three Hills, Alberta, Canada. It's a small town and it's a small school. I teach all of our Old Testament classes. It's really, really fun. I often call it the best job in the world.
0: Yeah, tell me about that. Why is it the best job in the world? Why? Where'd you land there? How'd you land there? Oh, Why did you pursue it? Um, what do you love about it?
1: Well, How it's was- the best. It's the best job because I get to study the Bible and tell other people what I'm learning. And so there's there's job security in that. I always have more to learn, and it's continually <laughs> exciting because as I learn new things, I have an immediate outlet to share them with others. And I, one thing I love about college teaching is that I'm walking alongside students right when they're at crossroads in their lives and they're trying to discern where's God called me, how he wired me, should I marry this person, should I become a missionary, how do I know what career is right for me? It's a, it's a very um, significant turning point for most people. And I get to sort of be a, a, a mentor to them in that season. So that's really fun. they are their you know their brains are formed i was going to say fully formed i guess your prefrontal cortex doesn't fully form until you're 22 but yeah. they're fully formed enough to do yeah. some deep thinking and to to consider challenging concepts and they're learning to live on their own and manage their schedules and it's it's a really fun time yeah that's so cool. i you asked how i ended up here um i did a phd at wheaton college in illinois then we moved back to oregon which is near our family half of our family and i was teaching there as an adjunct and looking for full-time work and this job popped up and i thought alberta that seems really random like who even lives in alberta where even is it like i had to get out a map to see i had heard of prairie college before i even had thought about going here when i was a student so long time ago back in high school but I couldn't remember where Alberta was in Canada. So I looked it up and um, ended up going all the way through the application process. And when I came up here for the campus interview, I made a startling discovery that I was a Canadian citizen already. <laughs> so,
0: do tell how, yeah, how that worked.
1: At 40 years of age, I didn't realize I was a dual citizen my whole life. So my dad had been born in British Columbia. And he immigrated to the States to go to college, met and married my mom and just stayed in the States. And so apparently he didn't become a U.S. citizen until I was four years old. And when I was born, I think he was nervous that he was going to be deported or something. And so he kind of downplayed the Canadian part of his identity. And so they never asked what it would mean for my citizenship. They never planned to live in Canada, so they just left it. And when when I came up here and talked to an immigration specialist about how can we get our family up here, he was asking me questions and went, "Wait, your dad was born here? I think you're a citizen." <laughs> so that's turned out to be really handy. Oh,
0: funny.
1: And I'm it's actually, an you go. Ahead. It's also a wonderful illustration, I think, of what happens to believers in Jesus, like especially Gentile believers, that we sort of find out that we've been written into this covenant. We have this citizenship in God's kingdom that we never knew we had.
0: I love that. I, that's actually where I was gonna go because, um, so mm. I'm out here, I'm from Southern California and my wife and I have been okay. out for uh, almost a decade now, but we are yeah. not um, certified citizens. We are somewhere in that triculated process of, okay. uh, of government paperwork and all that kind of stuff. And I think that's wonderful because as mm. you mentioned, there is an analogy that um, in citizenship, we are not, for us personally, we're not on stable footing. And that Mm -hmm. citizen or that demarcation of paperwork or whatever it is, allows you that comfort to like settle and rest. Mm. And as Gentile believers, uh, there is that comfort of like rest. When we use that term citizen, to me, it's taken on new meaning and new value um, because of my lack of of certainty, my unstable Mm -hmm. footing at the moment and all of that. And so it's been rich for me to think on that as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, when you don't have certain citizenship yourself, it does raise questions all the time. My husband and my kids are now permanent residents of Canada, but they don't have the dual citizenship that I have. And it's, it's constantly a question as he's filling out paperwork for us, he handles finances and setting up bank accounts and verifying identity. And he's just like, feels like at every turn, he's reminded, you don't belong here permanently. Like, mm-hmm. even though you're a permanent resident, like you, you're not like fully official here. So there's this constant state of like liminal space or, or feeling like you don't quite belong. Yeah.
0: Um, go ahead and mention liminal space. That's a term that you used in your book, mm-hmm. but um, it is yeah. something that we hear every day. So what is liminal space and how does it relate to bearing God's name, I suppose?
1: Yeah, so the, the fancy word liminal, I remember coming across that in seminary, as I was reading, doing my homework reading, and I came I, every time I came across it, I had to look it up again because I couldn't remember what it meant. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's finally stuck. So the the it comes from the Latin word lemon, which means threshold. So if you imagine a doorway or the the threshold of a building, if you were standing right in that doorway, you'd be in liminal space. You're neither inside nor outside. You're just between. So I like to think of liminal space as that. The the seasons we go through in life where we're between uh, times of certainty or settledness. Um, And so, the couple examples that I use in the book are like a pregnant woman is in liminal space because, you know, the baby's there, but she can't actually interact with it yet. And so she's a mom, but not quite fully, like she hasn't fully experienced motherhood um, because the child hasn't been born yet. Um, And I feel like what's been really fun about the book is I wrote about liminality long before 2020 Mm -hmm. but now all of us are in this kind of liminal space with the pandemic it's upended the things that we rely on being able to go to work being able to go to school um, being able to shop normally like just even wearing a mask gives us this sense that things are not quite normal not, not quite right and in many places people are realizing they aren't going to be able to see family for Christmas. And so we're just in this state of dislocation where our routines are disrupted. You can't exercise the way you used to in lots of places and can't go out to eat in lots of places. So it's kind of thrust the whole world simultaneously into liminal space. And I would contend that God does his deepest work in us when we're in liminal spaces, because we can't fall back on or rely on the things we normally do. And so we are forced to rethink, where does my strength come from? Where does my hope come from? How do I get through this day? Um, Who who do I trust? And God takes Israel, when when he brings them out of Egypt, he brings them into liminal space. They're in the wilderness for a good long time. And that's the ideal place for him to work on their character and to reshape them as his people. So this is an opportune time for all of us to be growing spiritually. But it is not fun, and we all want to be over over this as fast as possible, don't we?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and what would you say to you know? Because God does; He He brings Israel out to the wilderness for forty years to to test mm-hmm. them, right? And mm-hmm. but that's probably a word that we don't like, and we even maybe balk at in our modern culture, like, is God mm-hmm. testing us? And you'll have people that are very much vying for that and and people that are like, you're crazy, God doesn't test. Mm-hmm. And so what would you say to that in a modern context? Do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah,
1: I, I think what's really sobering about Israel's experience is that God brings them there. Not in initially, it's not for 40 years. He's, he's bringing them there en route to the promised land. It probably could have been an 18-month, two-year experience, right? By the time mm. they got to Sinai, received the law, built the tabernacle and went up to Kadesh and sent in the scouts and and got into the land like this is we're not talking a really long term. Now, 2 or 3 years is is still a long time to be camping. But but it wasn't it wasn't 40 years until they failed the test. Like God was teaching them to trust him and when they demonstrated that they would not trust him, um he he decided that that entire generation wasn't fit to enter the promised land and they needed to die in the wilderness. So it delayed everything by a whole generation. And so I think that's the big question is how is the church responding to COVID? How are we going to respond to it? And will we learn? I I, I don't wanna style this whole thing as a giant test from God. I don't, I don't think of COVID that way. I don't think of God like causing it, although you're Presbyterian, so maybe you do. <clears throat> lots of Presbyterians would, would think uh, would have a, a stronger view of God's sovereignty probably than I do. So whether, but whether God caused it or not, he uses it. Like here's where we are. So now he's, he's walking alongside us and he's asking, are you going to trust me? Or are you going to freak out? And <clears throat> if we, if we, if we fail this test, or if we show ourselves to be having our trust in the wrong places then I think there's a possibility that the church could be stuck in, in a um, cycle of unhealth for a, for a long time. Like th- this, is, this is like such a prime moment to remake the church for us to be. I mean, when else in all of church history has the entire church been shut down at once? <clears throat> has the entire church globally been told, don't meet the way you normally meet. Yeah. Fewer people stay apart from each other. Don't gather like this. So to, to some people, this feels like persecution and it should be fought. Mm-hmm. And to other people, it's like, no, we're, we're loving our neighbor by not gathering because we're trying not to spread the virus. So all across the spectrum, there's different ways of approaching that. But when else have we had the chance to like pull apart the whole Lego project and start rebuilding? Like when we start meeting again, what do we want it to look like? What are we realizing about the value of meeting together that we totally took for granted before? So it may, like, it may feel totally crazy for the government to say, you can't meet right now. It may feel like persecution. But honestly, a year ago, did you feel like meeting together was so important to you that you would give anything to be able to do it? Or were you kind of casual about church attendance? You know, like how many Christians actually just kind of like decided on a uh, week by week basis, whether they felt like getting up and going to church and now we're being told we can't go. And it's like, wait, you can't tell me that. So I just feel like this is a really unique opportunity for us to rethink what are we doing when we gather and what should we be doing? And what does the church do that nobody else does? What makes the church an essential service? And, and is there something we've been missing that, that we could now incorporate? Um, are we discovering new ways of being the church since we're not allowed to be in a building together? Are there other ways we're learning to love each other? So this is liminal space. It's the sort of tear down, rebuild. And I think I am waiting for some, I mean, as, as hard as this is. And as much as I don't like it, I expect some really creative and amazing things to come out of this season because everybody has to rethink how do we how do we do church? How can we be the church?
0: And that's so good. Um, I have so much to touch on on that, but I, and I want to push a little <clears throat> bit further into the time and the and the the church in which you're experiencing that in Canada because for us, um we've been in like a six month lockdown in Australia.. Yeah. And yeah. um, we've just started, as of uh, two weeks ago, actually started gathering together with its COVID normals, what they've called it, um, okay. and some of the restrictions in place. But um, there was that great uh, feeling of, of coming home. There was that great feeling yeah. of, wow, I really missed worshiping together or mm-hmm. just being in each other's presence. Um, and now we're, we're thinking through... Um, because w- the one thing you didn't mention, I think, was digital church. We now have mm-hmm. the opportunity to reach the yes, world in this kind do. of setting, and this medium, and all of that, and so we, we are mm-hmm. trying to figure out, as I think most other churches are trying to figure out, mm-hmm. what is the ecclesia? Is it okay to be mm-hmm. gathering digitally and and mm-hmm. thinking through, you know, the the process of that, yep. and I guess I was curious to know in the midst of that, and, and you kind of Um, you're giving me a lot. Do you have any thoughts of reformation or um, what you think those things that we might've been missing are before? Do you have any inclinations Mm -hmm. or, or even prayers that, you know, Mm -hmm. I hope um, the the church through this generation receives this or, or pushes Mm -hmm. into this. Mm -hmm. And that might not be where God's leading us, but just, you know, Mm -hmm. your desires personally.
1: Yeah, I think what I see us recovering is the value of embodied worship and embodied community. So, so yes, there's been an amazing, like most churches have upped their game in their digital output over Mm -hmm. the past year, whether they wanted to or not. Um, Pastors are learning how to live stream from, from their living room. And (laughs) uh, this, so this is good. As you said, this reaches more people, but it, it might not, fully suffice. Like it by itself, the digital service is not a full, fully embodied or full orbed church experience. I wrote a piece for Christianity Today's blog a few months back about why it makes a difference for us to be together, because I think the church is going to need to make the case for regathering. Some people are going to be really excited to come back other people, I think, will be like, you know, it's been kind of nice not to have to get up and do my hair on Sunday mornings and to just be in my pajamas on the couch. And so we, I think, have a fresh opportunity to make the case for why gathering does something. And I would say that just the physical being in the room and making eye contact with other people, even from a distance, even with a mask on, even if eye contact is all you get and you can't even really have a conversation, it communicates that you are not alone. You other person who's in this other chair six feet away from me, you are not alone. We're in this together. And you might've felt isolated all week long, but we are a community and it's worth showing up because look, I showed up and you showed up and we're here together. There's something that I can't even quite put words to that matters. When you're missing on Sunday morning, the body of Christ is not complete. Or whenever your church community meets, I guess not everyone would meet on a Sunday morning, but when, when we miss, when we're missing from gathered worship, there is something missing. Even if you feel personally, like I don't really make a difference when I come, it doesn't really do, I don't do anything, but I really believe that our physical presence does something it encourage it. It spreads out the encouragement to keep following Jesus. It it vindicates the faith of other believers and the trouble they took to come, and the trouble it takes to follow Jesus. It it says to all that this matters. We're in this together. So that's just one piece. It's almost intangible. Um. I would hope that coming back together, we would be able to recover some of the reverence we talked about earlier. Um, I think just full-throated singing (laughs) is something that I really missed, um, during our months of watching church on YouTube. Um, you know, I could sing, but the rest of my family didn't sing quite as loud. So then you just don't, it's not quite the same. There's an awkwardness in in your
0: living room. Yeah, that's right. How how much will people, yeah, go ahead.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's not just, it's not like, I, I think what I really realized is this isn't a concert where I'm watching someone else worship when we all sing together and we put our voices behind that, we are in, we're singing the same thing. There's this, there's a sort of unity that happens because we're singing because we're all singing the same thing. We're all thinking about the same thing at the same time. And it forms us as the body of Christ to sing together. Um, You know, different churches handle communion differently, but, Communion is another thing that's not quite the same when we're at home, right? We're not all sharing from the same loaf or drinking from the same cup. So, yeah, I, I think there's a lot that we missed in the time apart. We, in, here in Alberta, we were locked down for a while, but it hasn't been as stringent as Australia um, until this past week. And now we have a new, like, as of yesterday, we have a new a stricter lockdown and now it's mandatory work from home starting next week. High school students are all learning at home for the month of December, restaurants closed, stores at minimum, you know, like 15% capacity. So all those things, Um, yeah. And it's hard because it's Christmas time and basically they just said it's illegal to get together with your family for Christmas. Sounds wild. Yeah, we should have done our lockdown earlier. Yeah. So we could be together for Christmas.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you guys are hitting that second wave. I, I think what's really mm-hmm. interesting, I was talking to my mom the other day and she's in California still.
1: Mm-hmm. Um
0: the now from now from Australia and you from Canada, we can speak about our um <laughs> our rebellious uh uncle in America or whatever, yes. whatever I call him. Uncle
1: Sam. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, that's right. But um but you know that. Um, what I was wanting to say was she was talking about how they're really having a hard time embracing any unity in mm-hmm. um, the whole process. And, you know, you've even got uh, a policeman on um, on the news saying, I won't arrest anyone who's not wearing a mask and that, mm-hmm. that aspect of authority and what's good for my fellow man <clears throat> yeah. and all of that. How do you think, um, and, and I don't know, to be honest with you, so how is Canada kind of handling these restrictions? You know, Australia, we I think as people in general, we see the inconsistencies. So we see the, mm-hmm. well, that's not fair, or that we were able to really quickly point that out. Yeah. Um, but I think as a culture, Australia's kind of just grinning and bear it and taken it on the chin with some grumbling, mm-hmm. but with, yeah. you know, we're, we're going to do this. And we're going to do this. Yeah. Compliance. We're going to do this together yep. for our fellow man. We want this eradicated. Yeah. As much yeah. as this sucks, we want it eradicated. Whereas America's like, is it real you know like there's this whole mm-hmm. you know debacle and so very
1: po- polarized yeah
0: absolutely and so how how you know how has canada as a culture um handled this and and I and think, the church specifically i suppose
1: yeah I, I i don't feel like i'm in a great position to speak uh, broadly about canada i don't follow politics closely enough or follow news closely enough i can say that in alberta what i sense Alberta's kind of like the Wild West of Canada. It's similar to Colorado, maybe culture-wise, which is where I'm from originally. And I would say that in the cities, people understand how severe the pandemic is and the need to be really careful. I'm in a very small town. We have just over 3,000 people in our whole town and only 10,000 in our county. And we only have 14 cases in our county. So, people have a harder time taking the restrictions seriously. It feels like way overkill, yeah. um, because like we're not sick. So, can you just let us on go on with our lives? That's what I kind of hear from people. Hmm. So, I, I don't know. I, I have felt like our leadership has been really good and balanced. Our provincial leadership, as far as how to respond to the pandemic and not not um, completely destroy the economy by closing down like radically, but not just being wide open and letting the virus, you know, go crazy. So I feel like they've been judicious. And, um, but I, but then I hop on Twitter and I see that our health officials have a lot of haters because they didn't close down sooner than what they did. So it really depends. I think if you're urban or rural and I've, you know, one of my friends is a, is a priest at us teeny tiny little Anglican church here in town. And he's getting directives from his higher up. So even if the province says you can still meet his superiors are saying you can't. And they're in the city centers kind of making a blanket statement or blanket prohibition for everybody. And it feels out of touch with his congregation of, you know, maybe 18 people who gather, like, you know, there's no reason to shut this down. So it's just hard. There, it doesn't feel like there's a one-size-fits-all response for that that works well everywhere. Yeah, no doubt.
0: Well, I'd love to, um, you know, before I let you off the hook, I'd love to slightly pivot because I, I do want mm-hmm. to know, um, there is this kind of um, interest that I have in some of your specific challenges as uh, as a woman in your sector. You mentioned mm-hmm. uh, the doctorate mm-hmm. thing early on, very early on. Uh, your yeah. colleague said, I, I'm going to use this doctor title so that I, you know, kind of- um, yes." Um, almost, yeah, it begs respect, right? And so right. Um, I'd be curious to know um, what have you experienced in your, um, through university, through the church, mm-hmm. um, just as, as a woman, what are some of the things that I might not know mm-hmm. or, or might not experience mm-hmm. or encounter?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, there are lots of stories I could tell. I feel like growing up in the church um, I grew up in the Christian Reformed Church, so similar to Presbyterian, and we had our church was very conservative in those days. The CRC did not ordain women and did not allow women to preach, and so I grew up assuming that that was that was right and true and good, and it was the right way to read scripture. And so I never saw um, women up front preaching or teaching. It, with one exception, we had one young woman from our congregation who went off to university and then seminary and became an Episcopal priest. And for some reason, they let her come back and do an, a sermon on a Sunday night. And I remember feeling like, wait, I thought that wasn't allowed, <laughs> but I guess they got away with it because it was Sunday night. That felt jarring to me. Uh, as much as I liked her, I thought, I thought we didn't do that here. Yeah. Um, so I didn't grow up thinking that it was a possibility for me to be in that kind of ministry. I felt called to missions at a young age, but I, but I didn't think of myself. I didn't think of pastoral ministry as a possibility. I remember one time in a children's sermon, our pastor saying it was a children's sermon that involved like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he just made this offhand comment. Of course, none of you want to want my job or want to be like me when you grow up. And I remember just being shocked that he would say such a thing hmm. because didn't everybody want his job when they
0: you were telling me about the um the pastor who said no one wants this job
1: yes yes and i was just flabbergasted because even as a 7-year-old little girl i thought who what better job in the world could there be than to be a pastor and to shepherd this whole church and to speak the word of god from up front i just I thought that was the most amazing job in the world. And yet at the same time, I never imagined that that job could be available to me because I was a woman and I never saw a woman in that role. So um, so I didn't grow up thinking I wanted to be a pastor, but I did feel a sense of call to missions. And so that was something I saw women doing. And I I just felt passionately like the whole world needs to know about Jesus. And so if I can be part of that, um, I, I want to be part of that. So all along the way, I would say there were professors and pastors who came alongside me and really encouraged me in my own academic journey and in my ministry journey who believed in me. And, you know, they'd pull me aside and say, I see that you have a gift for teaching and I want to see you use that, like, but not just like nudging me towards it, but making space for me to do that. And so... One one notable example was um, after my first year of Bible college, I came home. I think I probably wrote the pastor before I even got home and said, this has been an amazing year. I've learned so much. I would love some chance to pass along what I'm learning. Like maybe I could teach it to the youth group, or maybe I could do a, like a Sunday school class for adults or something. And he said, yes, I would love to have you do that and i'm going to require everyone on the, on our church staff and elder board to take your class. So at 18 years old, i had all the church leaders sitting in front of me and i was teaching them about understanding worldviews. And that was just an example of, of uh, among many i could give of pastors who've been so generous with their with their platform to share it with me and give me opportunities as appropriate in each context. Um, to, to use what God's given me and pass it on to others. I'm sure that there were many mistakes along the way and many lackluster moments, but, um, but so many times others have encouraged me on the journey. So I'm just really grateful that, that people saw in me what I couldn't even see in myself and kept nurturing this, this path for me.
0: Yeah, praise God for the body and that and that mm-hmm. encouragement because we all need it at different times.
1: Yes, I we do. On, on
0: that word of encouragement, I, I'm interested to um, press a little bit further into that, because one of the things that my wife and I talk about, we both work in ministry and um, rightly or wrongly, our church has adopted um, uh, complementarianism as one of the kind of core values or themes Mm -hmm. that they'd like to grab onto. And one of the things that we see is um, what can be hard or feel um, limiting is uh, the scope and the ceiling to which women can then Mm -hmm. further their gifting in ministry. You know, you've got Mm -hmm. that very black and white. I'm not preaching from the as you mentioned, or uh, I'm not exercising the gifts in these ways. So in that context, I'd be curious to know, we're talking about encouragement. How do you encourage women who are potentially, you know, as you um, teach them uh, through your studies Mm -hmm. and things like that, Mm -hmm. how do you then encourage women to continue uh, to pursue their giftings and potentially pursue ministry?
1: Yeah, I would say every denomination is a little bit different. We could probably, if we mapped them all out, even just all the complementarian denominations, there'd probably be 25 different places where people draw the line between Mm -hmm. what women can do and what they can't do. And so I think when I'm counseling students, each student's situation is different, their church of origin, their family of origin. Um, But if if a woman comes to me and she's sensing a call to ministry or a desire to do ministry in some form, um, I love to think with her about what could that look like in your context? I'm not interested in women going around with hammers trying to break glass ceilings. I am interested in helping women discover what are the ways that they can use the gifts God's given them in appropriate ways in their context. How can they honor their parents in this this journey? How can they honor their pastor? In some cases, it involves finding a different church context if if the place that they are is just not open to women having any kind of Um, ministry, but usually there are places for women to serve Um, by teaching children, leading worship, um, or participating in worship, or by teaching women, or by teaching midweek Bible studies. Uh, There there are ways for women to serve. And so I feel like my job is to equip women to read scripture well and to, to live faithfully in response. And I think if I could give women one message, it would be You matter to the body of Christ. The body of Christ is not the same without you. And your gifts and talents need to be part of the ministry of the church in some way. And so to keep pushing to find where that is and how that could work. And then my word for pastors would be make space for women to do ministry in your church. Even in a complementarian setting, what are you doing to encourage women to be well-trained to do the things that you allow them to do? So I've known of women who felt a real strong desire to attend seminary, to take classes and go deeper into scripture and who have minds who are just so well, um, well equipped to understand theology and just love it. And yet they feel like what would be the point of investing all that money and going into debt to go to seminary if there's no place for me to use that gift in my church? Like there's no paid position. So why would I go into debt for a volunteer position? And so I think there's there's a variety of problems there. And one of them is that we don't see women in seminary because pastors and leaders aren't seeing the value of training women in seminary. And if we saw the value and encouraged women to pursue it, then they would know that they could come back and use those gifts in our context. And I I think the other problem is that um, there is a sense that women's ministry is light or fluffy or not substantive or that it doesn't need to be substantive. And let me tell you, Um, women are hungry to learn and grow they're hungry for substance and if they don't find it in your church they will find it somewhere and there has been there's been such an interesting phenomenon of sort of rock star female bloggers and youtubers who have um, who have in some cases captured the hearts of the women in the church And taken them in a direction that is contrary to the church's doctrinal statement and doctrinal commitments, because women are so starved for that substantive teaching, they're going elsewhere. And so you have women who aren't under the authority or uh, umbrella of any church who have these huge followings um, because nobody's policing YouTube or their blog. And I'm not saying to women to stop blogging or doing YouTube, I'm saying to pastors yeah. if you don't feed them they will go elsewhere if you don't make space for women to um, to be taught by women who are well trained so I think churches should prioritize salaried positions for women whether they're full-time or part-time and we should we should be telling women it matters that you think well about scripture we if you're going to be there teaching my children, I want you to know scripture well. I don't want you to be Googling on Saturday afternoon some, some Bible lesson. I want you to actually be engaging the word of God and giving my children meat. So so I think we need to train, train our children's pastors. We need to tr- train our women's ministry directors and, and give, them, give them tools that they can use. So one of the projects that I've just um, agreed to participate in is for LifeWay publishers, and it's a new women's study Bible. And it's going to be different from the older women's study Bible that LifeWay put out, because this one is completely written by women for women. And so all the study notes are written by women who have PhDs or are working on PhDs in biblical studies and are bringing bringing their best game to this really important task of interpreting scripture with, with women and for women highlighting passages that women struggle with and that might Mm -hmm. not get preached about on a Sunday morning. And so it was, it's just a real joy to be part of the project with so many talented women and knowing that this Bible will mainly be used in complementary and context where women might not be getting meaty Bible teaching from women. They might not know that's possible. And so I'm really excited about contributing to that.
0: Incredible. Are you able to plug um, the release, you know, potential release date or anything that information for people to kind of follow up? Would that be on your um, then website or blog in the future, or how will in we know? In the future, about
1: that? yeah. In the future, um, I will definitely be splashing that one all over social media. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my my note. I'm writing the Exodus notes. They're due next December. I think it'll take another year before it comes out. So we're looking at twenty, probably 2023, before that hits the market. Um, but people can check out my blog, CarmenJoyImes.blogspot.com. Um, I also have a YouTube channel and I release uh, videos every Tuesday called Torah Tuesday. As I'm working my way through the book of Exodus, writing a commentary, um, I've, I've been producing these little videos to just pass along nuggets from what I've learned. You don't have to know Hebrew to benefit from, from my, the stuff that I'm sharing, Um, And I'm also on Facebook and Twitter, so people can follow me there.
0: Amazing, thank you so much for your time today, Carmen. Um Thank you. I, I want to personally thank you for all of those books in the background. I, I see you post <laughs> and I see you constantly studying and I see you constantly mm-hmm. in different books. And so I thank God for the body of Christ, for mm-hmm. women like you and people like you who are devouring uh, this mm-hmm. knowledge and who are uh, disseminating and passing it along to lay people like myself. So yeah, thank you, you so bet. much for your pursuit in that.
1: Yeah. Thanks for your interest in my work and for this conversation. It was really fun. All
0: right. Take care, Connie. You too. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening today. If you found this episode helpful, please do share it with a friend. We want others to uh, embrace this unscripted life, this uh, life apart from promotion or perfection, but honesty and purity and love. So until we catch up again, let's consider how we may spur each other on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, but encouraging each other as we see the day approaching. Love you guys. Peace.